0: At the same church in Virginia. So uh, I have fond memories of of Pastor Will and his wife Lisa and their children. Um, They're a fantastic couple, and I'm so excited to hear that he has taken up the pastorate. I always thought that he would make a great pastor, and so you are much the better off for having him. Um, A little bit of background of uh, who I am. Uh, uh, As you can hear, I have an accent, I'm originally from South Africa. Call it the real deep south, right at the bottom of the globe. Um, the tip of Africa, uh, Cape Town, is where I met my wife. She's from Virginia. So when we moved uh, back to the United States, we moved to Virginia. That's where I attended the same church as uh, Pastor Will. Um, I was a pastor in South Africa of a Baptist church there. And, so, and I've done an internship here and I've preached regularly in the church that I currently attend. It's Harbor Reformed Baptist Church in Holland here in Michigan. We live currently in Zealand, as was mentioned. And, uh, well, there's a brief synopsis of who I am. I'll tell you a little story. Uh, I was a pastor for about two months, which is about as long as Pastor Will has been here. And um, I, I went to a conference, and I met uh, a man in a conference there, we a Christian conference. Uh, we had Doug Moo out. He was doing a ses- session on Romans. And we just got along really well. And uh, I said to him, hey, you should preach for me on Sunday. And so I phoned, phoned my uh, currently, there, there was just the deacons. I said, uh, we're, having, we're having someone I met at the conference preach on Sunday. And so, and Pastor Will has known me for longer than that. So, I assure you um, that uh, he stands on better ground than I did. Well, it went well. My friend, Pastor Joshua Balaji was his name. Did our, eventually, did our Christmas camp for us in my church. So, uh, he was, was well-received. And I pray that I will be well-received this morning for Pastor Will's sake. If you will open up your Bibles, and you can keep your fingers there to John chapter 1, we will be looking at the first 18 verses. We'll read that in a moment. But just by way of introduction, um, being from South Africa, uh, it is summertime during Christmas. You know, and I don't know if you can quite comprehend that if you have always lived in Michigan. Because uh, in South Africa during the summers, it's uh, you know, 70 to 90 degrees we're wearing shorts, we go to the beach, and we have barbecues. The sun sets about 10 o'clock in the evening, like Michigan summer's here. Um, so the real hallmark Christmas is not something that we are very familiar with. You know? We have all the, all the advertising. We have the Santa Clauses dressed up, all the snowflakes in the shops, all the Christmas trees. But it has no bearing for us because it's summertime, right? So I really loved having my very first white Christmas this year. I should get an amen for that. It was something I always looked forward to my whole life, and we we had one this year. We didn't have one the previous Christmas in Michigan, but we did have one uh, this year. But I've really come to really appreciate this whole season here in Michigan. I really love the season, um, and part of the reason for that is because you know, lights, Christmas lights really don't mean much. In bright sunlight. <laughs> so, you know, you have 10 o'clock in the evening, the sun goes down, and you're not staying up very late. Christmas lights means nothing there. Here, the sun sets like 5 o'clock in the afternoon. It's dark. When I'm driving home from work, so everywhere you go, in the towns and the cities, there's lights sparkling during the season. And it's just such a refreshing time. I just love that, the darkness of it and the light that shines very brightly. And it's very interesting that I consider this because that's what we're going to be looking at in, from John's Gospel this morning the light that shines at the backdrop of a very dark world. And we can draw some hope from this text. So I want you to read together with me from John's Gospel, and we shall be reading the first 18 verses. This is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Father, grant us now understanding into this text and help us to draw from your word instruction that may govern our lives so we may be better equipped, O Lord, to live as your people in this dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Are these safe? All right, thank you. So in our text, John goes all the way back To the beginning. But not just the beginning, an important part of the creation narrative. He goes back to the very first words uttered by God in Genesis 1, verse 3 Let there be light. There we have the word, and there we have the light. This becomes a driving metaphor for John's gospel. The light shines in the darkness. Now this morning I want to develop the theme of light found here in the prologue to John's gospel and look at three key moments in our redemptive history to discern what John is telling us about who Jesus is. We will look at Genesis, Isaiah, or as you say Isaiah, and Revelation and see how each of these woven together help us grasp this opening section of John's gospel. This won't be a detailed analysis of these first 18 verses. It will need four or five sermons for that, but it will be an overview of the key moments and key events in this gospel, in this opening section of John's gospel, so that we may be able to draw some of these themes out from the rest of Scripture. I'll be developing these along three lines of thought, or three points. We will look at, firstly, the sign, secondly, the servant, and then, thirdly, the song. The sign, the servant, the song. So let's turn to the first, the sign. Many scholars have noted that John's gospel is loaded with signs and symbolic language. If we were to structure John's gospel, we will see it open with a prologue in chapter 1, verse 18, which we're looking at this morning. And then we'll notice that it has two major sections, the first being called the Book of Signs, found in chapter 1, verse 19, through 12, verse 50. And the second being the book of glory, found in chapter 13, verse 1, to chapter 20, verse 31. And then it concludes with the type of postscript found in chapter 21, verse 1 to 25. That's an overview of the structure of the Gospel of John. Now, when referring to the book of signs, there are seven signs in the book of signs. And this is from chapter 1, verse 19, to 12, verse 50. We are particularly thinking Of those special events recorded in the Gospel where Jesus reveals his messianic identity through a particular act or event, as John, or what John calls a sign. Uh, Here we have in mind the turning of the water into wine or the feeding of the multitudes. Those were all signs done by Jesus to slowly reveal or unveil who he is to his disciples. However, There are other types of signs and symbols that John uses throughout the gospel. And these also point to the nature of who Jesus is. For example, in our text this morning, we see John using the terms, the word, light, darkness. In these terms, we find John employing symbolism to describe something of who Jesus is or what he has come to accomplish. We will see these terms repeated at key points in the gospel, and we will unpack some of these key moments as we progress this morning. We'll look at one or two of them. But I want to note that John is not merely using symbolic language as a descriptive tool, but he is also using language uh, that is a signpost back to the Jewish scriptures, to the Old Testament. John is going to use these terms as signs and symbols to both describe who Jesus is and also what He has come to accomplish and this morning I want to concentrate on the term light John tells us in verse 4 that in the word was life and the life was the light of men and then he climaxes this section in verse 5 with that famous statement the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it what does John mean by this well as I said in my introduction To understand John's choice of language, we must go back to Genesis 1 in this instance. He starts in the beginning. And here in Genesis 1, as you might be well familiar with, we have the building blocks of the Judeo-Christian worldview of what we believe as Christians, about the world and how it's structured. Everything begins here in this first chapter of Genesis. But Genesis 1 does not just depict the facts of creation... But it also gives us the language and imagery that will form the basis for our theology for the rest of Scripture. Of who God is, what we can know about Him, and descriptive tools that we can understand about the gospel. And the very first spoken words of God are found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. Let there be light. Now, this is what John is pointing back to with his words, the light shines in the darkness. This very moment, this very first act, the very first spoken words of God. Now, just as God's first act of creation was to bring light to shine amidst the darkness of the formless and void earth, so now John is indicating to us that the light has come to shine in the darkness of humanity. That's the point that John is getting at. What John is basically saying here in the opening prologue is, if you go back to Genesis 1, God is not just describing what He did, but he's He's describing what He is going to do as well when the gospel comes to bear upon the world. So you see how John uses Genesis 1. It is not author license, This is done by the Holy Spirit. And we are to hearken to that and listen very carefully. What is happening in those first building blocks? What is God doing when He's creating the earth and separating light from darkness? And how does John use that and talk to to us about who Jesus is? It's important. The question, obviously, in our minds is, well, how is the world now in darkness if God had created light? Surely the sun rises every morning. It rises on the righteous and the unrighteous. Well, we'll get into it a little bit this morning, but we know all well the story of Genesis chapter 3. That great tragic event that plunged all of us, the entire human race, into spiritual darkness. And so now what John here is referring to is a darkness that is far more scary than just the pitch of night. It is an inner darkness. A spiritual darkness, a blindness, something that every single person is born into in this world. Our father Adam has plunged us into darkness. We see these images right throughout Scripture. Uh, For example, when Paul himself speaks to the Athenian philosophers in Acts chapter 17, he speaks to them as groping around in darkness with their idols. And that is the search and quest of every Human being now, apart from the gospel of Christ, is a groping around in darkness. The quest that we are looking for, it's like someone that is uh, his eyes have been poked out and is totally blinded and is trying to find their way home in the fog of night. No signpost means anything. No one can point them in their direction. And they cannot see themselves. That is the darkness that John now refers to. The darkness that veils all of us when we are born into this world. John depicts this, for example, in his gospel in chapter 3, verse 19. And there he writes, The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. And so now, that depicted for us here in the prologue, the light once again shines in the darkness. John is telling us that just as God began his creative work by bringing light to shine in the darkness of the great void, so now the very first redemptive act of God begins with the light of God's revelation shining in the darkness and void of the human condition. This brings us to our second point the servant the servant. See, as the creation narrative unfolds, we come to that dismal chapter that we just mentioned, chapter 3, the fall of humanity into sin. Here, in a perfect and good world created by God, the serpent lurks and through cunning and deception brings the hearts of God's image-bearing creatures into darkness. What a sad tale. But here, even amidst the despair, a flicker of light emerges in a promise found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The literal figuration there is that he's going to crush the works of the serpent, though he will be injured and marred to a degree. This new seed of the woman is going to come and crush this works of the serpent. Theologians have called this for centuries the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. And here we find the promise that works, the works of the serpent will be crushed by a seed of the woman. Who the seed is remains unidentified in this section. But the unfolding of the redemptive history recorded for us in Scripture has to do with the identity of this serpent crusher. That's what all of the Bible is about. It's looking out for who the seed of this woman is. It is as if a question is asked every time we encounter a major character in Scripture. For example, when we get to Noah, or perhaps when we get to Abraham, or perhaps when we get to Moses, or perhaps when we get to David... We are always, is this the one that has come to crush the head of the serpent? That's the question that's behind every major figure or hero that we read in the Old Testament. And we know the answer now. Looking back that no, none of them were the answers. But imagine yourself for a moment being that first person, not knowing what the future holds, having a hero rise up amongst your people, and knowing God's promises to you, and wondering, will this be the one that will crush the works of Satan? It's always an anticipated question. And so the Old Testament is building this anticipation. It's building this intense moment of questioning, who is the coming one? And while the whole Old Testament hints and promises throughout the Old Testament at who it might be, it isn't until the prophetic literature that the identity of this coming one, the Messiah, begins to take shape. And the most prominent voice among the prophets pointing to the identity of the coming serpent crusher is Isaiah. In Isaiah 40, verse, chapter 40 to 55, which is sometimes... Uh, called the Book of Songs, we find what scholars call the Servant Songs that depict the identity of the coming Messiah, the coming Serpent Crusher. And this whole section from Isaiah chapter 40 through 55 begins in chapter 40 with these words given to the exiled Jewish people who have found themselves in Babylon because none of their heroes were the Serpent Crushers. And now they're in Babylon, exiled away from the Holy Land, and they're in mourning. It's kind of like what we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom exile Israel, who mourns in lonely exile here. That's what the song is about. It's depicting Israel in the state of mourning, now caught up here waiting for someone to deliver them and bring them back uh, to the Holy Land. And here the words begin in chapter 40 when God says to them, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And then he gives those famous words that we have found repeated in the New Testament. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And here's the important part. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth the Lord has spoken. Here's a promise to Israel, to them, the captive Israel in Babylon. But yet here is a promise that reveals something of the extent of the gospel. All flesh shall see it. It is in this context that Isaiah then gives us four servant songs that describes the manner of the Lord's coming, which climaxes in Isaiah chapter 53, which we are all familiar with. Describing the death of the Messiah, the ransom of God's people by the shed blood of the servant of the Lord. But it is Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1 to 6, that I want to highlight for our purposes here this morning. This is one of the lesser known servant songs, but it's really important for the continuing theme of light that John refers to in his gospel. You see, when John writes in John chapter 1, verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, he thinks back to this servant song in Isaiah 49. What does he draw from? What does John mean, and what is Isaiah pointing to? Well, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, we read this, "'It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob,' and to bring back the preserved of Israel. You see, it's too light of of a thing for you to only collect Israel back to the Holy Land. That's too small. It's not big enough of a job for this servant of mine. And then he says this, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Here is the promise back in Genesis 3 verse 15 of a restored humanity. Here is what we are looking for. Not just someone that's going to be a hero for Israel like Samson perhaps was, but someone that is going to be a hero for God, extending the kingdom of God over the entire globe. And this is what's promised here, a lot for the nations. You see, here we see the extent of the Messiah's ministry. It isn't just to redeem those chosen from Israel, but rather it will extend even to the Gentiles, In a sense, this servant's ministry is so powerful that it cannot be limited to Israel. It is going to shine through Israel, beyond her borders, and in John's words, give light to everyone. This doesn't mean that everyone will come to the light, or we will be saved, or will be saved through the Messiah's ministry. No, it doesn't mean that. It's not universalism. We see in the context of John's gospel in chapter 3 verse 20 that everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. So there are people who would distance themselves from the light. They don't want to come to the light because their works will be exposed. But even in John chapter 1 verse 10 to 12, John continues. And it says here of Christ, he was in the world And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And listen to this. He came to his own people, and his own did not receive him. Remarkable so. And then it continues with the great hope of the section. But to all who did receive him. You see that? To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of. Of God. And then just in that moment when you think this is of your own efforts, this is of my own decision, he says further, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor even of the will of man, but of God. Regeneration, the Holy Spirit, transforming the hearts of his people. Redemption is the act of God, and this is the revelation of that here in this very passage. Through this mysterious servant of Isaiah 49, God is going to bring the light of salvation to the ends of the earth, to all who will receive Him, to all who will believe in His name. And all of those who do, we know, are born of God. They have the light of life in their hearts. They have the Holy Spirit in their That has regenerated them and given them hope and life through the light of life. But what about the identity of the serpent crusher? You see, John hasn't given us a name yet. Even here in the prologue. If you were a Jew reading for this, anticipating and waiting, perhaps for the first time reading this, you'll, you'll be waiting. All right, who? Who is this word? Who is this light? You know, he, he leaves it silent until the end of the prologue. He really he leaves it hanging here. He's building us anticipation for his original hearers. For us, we just know it. Okay, we, you know, we Sunday school answer, who is it? It's Jesus. But for, for the first reader of this gospel who came from a Jewish background, this is uh, anticipation. He's crafting his argument. He's going to bring out this force in the end of the prologue. But let us walk through some of the points here first. This brings us to our final point the song. The song. You see, in the prologue of John's gospel, we find the identity of the servant revealed in verses 14 to 18. This is, in some senses, the birth narrative of John's gospel. He writes, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. If you were a Jewish reader, that would strike you because here is the incarnation of the Word. You see, it's not one of our heroes of old, it is someone with a complete unique identity. It's the Word Himself through whom all things were made. It's the Word that was there right in the beginning when light was first spoken. And yet, this word will take on flesh, become one of us. And then he says very literally here, and the word became flesh and, our text says, dwelt among us, but the word's literally tabernacled among us. That will stand out to you. If you were Jewish, read a tabernacle. You think right back to the Exodus narratives, to the giving of the tabernacle and the Mosaic covenant. And you know that that means the presence of God with His people. You also know that that means the sacrifice for sin. The atonement resides. This is how we are restored. This is how we can dwell in God's presence. It's through the tabernacle, or through the temple it became. But that's what will strike you. Here the tabernacle will be among us once again. He didn't just move into the neighborhood, as Eugene Peterson Puts it in his message. I think he misses the crucial element here. He is pointing back here to the Exodus narrative. The tabernacle is now God's favor upon his people. That's how we know God is with us. Is we have the tabernacle. We have the temple. That's what a Jewish thinker would think. And so here John writes that this tabernacling, this presence of God is now not going to be contained in a building or a location, but in a person, in a human being. The Word became flesh. But John also depicts this presence in the semblance of light. And he goes on to say, and he says, We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Obviously, the entire the purpose of John's narrative, the purpose of John's gospel is the unveiling of the glory of this Word made flesh. The unveiling of the glory of this Jesus who himself is making himself known to his disciples and then to the rest of the world through his death and resurrection. That's the purpose of John's gospel. But here John says, we have seen his glory. And there's two things there that we need to note about that. Firstly, he's thinking back, and we just read it this morning, and to Exodus 33. Remember Moses, the friend of God. Moses, the one that asked the Lord, can I see your glory? And what does God say to Moses? Sure, let me show you. you. know, No, it will destroy Moses. He says, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you. I will veil my glory and you can see my back. And even from that event, Moses' face didn't stop shining so that the Israelites themselves didn't want to look upon Moses himself. He had to veil his face, right? John says, Now, in this word may flesh, we have beheld His glory. That's the first thing that John is thinking of. The second thing that John is thinking of is perhaps another event that's recorded for us in the Synoptic Gospels. And some scholars think is. This is recorded here in John's particular unique way. And what is that great event in the Synoptic Gospels? Well, it's the transfiguration. See, John was one of three disciples invited onto the mountain to see Jesus unveiled in glory in front of him. Transfigured. And when we read of the account recorded for us in Luke's Gospel, the description given in chapter 9, verse 28 to 29 is given in apocalyptic terms. This is what Luke records. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. That's like apocalyptic language, right? Daniel chapter 7, which we'll see in a moment. Interestingly enough, this is very similar to John's own experience later on the island of Patmos where he was exiled when he encounters Jesus and records that encounter for us in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 11 to 12. This is what John records of that moment. He says, I was in the Spirit in the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. and In the midst of the seven lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. I know you all living in Michigan. It's been a long time since you've seen the sun. <laughs> but if you can remember what it looks like, it's bright when you look into it. You see how when John writes in his gospel, we beheld his glory. It takes, it's a very different meaning for John than it is for us. John beheld the glory of Christ unveiled. We still behold it veiled, in some senses, through the Lord's table, through His Word. But there will come a day when we will see Him face to face. And the reason that we have our sin washed away so that we can see Him face to face one day. That's the purpose of the redemptive narrative. Well, here back in the Revelation of John, he merges two key elements in Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7 is an interesting book. You might be very familiar with it. Maybe you're not. Some people um, have rarely touched Daniel. Some people live only in Daniel 7. <laughs> but it's descriptive of uh, the throne of God in heaven and then the one like a son of man who receives power and authority. And interesting enough here is uh, those two images are merged together in this vision of Jesus. Basically, the description of the one seated upon the throne, the Ancient of Days, the description there's is, is the one that Jesus is described of right here. And yet he is the Son of Man as well. You see, he is truly God, truly human. This is what is Daniel couldn't quite comprehend that John is trying to communicate to us. This one is fully divine, fully human being. These are wonderful images to take you know, your friends as Jehovah's Witnesses along to and you know, go back to these images and see what John is communicating. Go to Daniel and see the language. It's so clear that John beheld who Jesus really was. And in seeing what he was, he beheld what he came to do in more striking terms. That this one came to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what John records for us in chapter 5 of Revelation, verses 9 to 10. You know, this is the song of the redeemed. This is where my title the song comes from. Because this is what it's all about. What is he come to do? Well, here all the redeemed will sing a new song. You know, we'll carry on singing in glory. Isn't that cool? We'll carry on singing. We'll sing new songs. We don't always sing, you know, the old meters, the old hymns. We'll sing some new hymns too. But this is a hymn that echoes throughout all eternity, from the beginning of time right throughout. The end of, there is no end of time, but if you know the metaphor, the end of time. This is the song of redeemed. And here they sing it. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign On the earth. You see that extent. It's the extent of the Messiah's ministry. He's ransomed people from everywhere. And they become priests to our God. And they shall reign alongside him. See, this is where we are going, folks. This is the song we all one day will sing in unison with every other redeemed creature that has been marred by the darkness of the fall but yet now transformed by the light of Christ, the song of the redeemed. But this song will bring us to a place. You see, it will bring us to a place. And where is that place? Well, it's Moses' hopes and dreams. May I see your glory. It's the presence of God, unveiled into His presence. You see, that is exactly where we are going. That is... uh, Where the biblical narrative started is with God, let there be light. A light that will display His glory. And Revelation ends in chapter 22, verse 1 to 5, 5, once again, with that picture of light. Let's listen to where it's going. John, Revelation 22, verse 1 to 5, tells us what's in store for us. And there, once again, we find the imagery of light and darkness. This time in the eternal extension of darkness, there will be no more darkness. Darkness. And this is how John describes it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in each month. You see the tree of life all the way back in Genesis that we are shielded from right now? We'll receive that. And then the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You see, not just one nation, but the nations, plural, the healing of the peoples, the healing of the fall, of those who have been lost. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and on His name will be on their, and His name will be on their foreheads. You see that they will see. His face. And night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light or of sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Isn't that a glorious picture? Don't get caught up into the imagery too much. What? We'll have no more night? I like having a nap. You know, going to bed at night. Sleeping. No. The picture is of evil done away with. The darkness that dwells in our souls, extinguished eternally. The ability for us to be able to be in God's presence unveiled and behold His face as one speaks to a friend. Moses' very dream of seeing God in all of His magnificence, that is where we're heading. That's the song of the redeemed. That's why we will sing that. Because the Lamb has made us worthy. So, in conclusion, I want to come back to why I love the Christmas season here in West Michigan. This whole season. Because the days are short, and that means more darkness for the lights to shine more brightly. That's really why it's so wonderful here. You can't comprehend that unless you have lived in the Southern Hemisphere where you have daytime all day long, right? It really is. It makes me like a little child again. My wife always says, you know, who's more excited, the daddy or the children? I don't know. You know, it's hard. Christmas season coming. lights. But the reality is it provides a great metaphor for us in saying the gospel. You see, and the hope of the gospel, no matter how dark it gets out there, the darker it is, the brighter the lights shine. The brighter the hope of the gospel shines. And the world can get really dark. But you know what? The light shines in the darkness. That's what John's gospel tells us. And the darkness has not overcome it. So I want us to remember three things in recap. Firstly, remember that John uses symbolic language, as signposts, to point us back to the Old Testament, so that we can understand more about who Jesus is from the Jewish scriptures, from the Old Testament. Signposts—they're great to point us back. And in John chapter one, verse five, verse one to one to five, he refers us all the way out to Genesis one, verse three. The same God who spoke light into a dark and chaotic world at the beginning of creation has not abandoned His creation when sin entered in. He did not just leave it to run its course. No, John reminds us that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And this light shines through the Word made flesh, and we have seen His glory. And dear friends, for those who are redeemed, we will see His glory. You comprehend it now, veiled, but you will see His glory. So when you are tempted to fear, when you look out at the world there, and look at the darkness that surrounds you, and look at how evil it is, don't fret, for the light shines more brightly the darker it gets. Secondly, the light that is coming will enlighten all people. God's purposes, though they work through Israel, are not just for Israel. They are for all people's. God is working to restore humanity to Himself. That's what He is doing since the fall. That is what we learn from John 1 verse 9, referring back to Isaiah 49 verse 6. The promised Messiah, the serpent crusher, will be the light of revelation for the Jews as well as the Gentiles. The promise given in Genesis 3 verse 15 is a promise to restore God's image-bearing creatures, you and I. And the extent of that promise is global. Though not all people will come to the light for love of darkness, God will ransom from Himself peoples from every tribe, people, and nation. And that is why missions is important. That is why your witness is important. That is why what we do as responsible Christians is share this light with our neighbors and also with the world around us. We don't just keep it under a bushel. We open it up, let people see it. Right? Let that little light shine. So let's be reminded that the extent of the promises are global. And we are responsible for sharing that light around. And thirdly, the hope of salvation is not a movement. You know? It's not a religion, though it has religious overtones. But it's in a person. It's a person. It is those who have, rece- who have received the Son of God that are granted the right to become the children of God. Familial language. Real relationship. Authentic religion is all about knowing the one true God personally. That is what it's about. Coming from a darkness and leaving your darkness and not being afraid of coming to the light is a step of vulnerability in a sense. But it is to allow the word to expose the darkness in your soul so that you may grasp upon the goodness of the gospel. He's not there to cast you off. He's there to welcome and so in a sense, the story that we are trying to share here from John's gospel, John's, john they come to the light. Don't stay away because of your fears. He is gentle and kind and loving. Here he says it over and over, contrasting with the Mosaic covenant. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. The first mention of his name here in this prologue grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. It's interesting. D.A. Carson tells the story of a, a Muslim friend that he had befriended when he was studying um, uh, science, I believe he was studying science. D.A. Carson's a New Testament scholar um, and took him home to Canada. His dad was a Baptist pastor in Canada um, and took this friend of him home one, one summer and this friend and they traveled through and they went to one of the courtrooms, and in the courtrooms of all the great legal faces. There was Socrates, there was Moses, you know, all, all of the great law, law-making uh, philosophers of history was up there. And the Muslim man was looking around, and he and Carson had been talking a lot about Christianity. And he said, he said where is Jesus Christ? He asked one of the people who was showing them through the, the courtroom. And they said, Jesus Christ? He said, yes, Jesus Christ. He said, isn't the foundation of all law grace and truth? I don't see Jesus Christ up here. And it said, dear Carson said it was a remarkable moment for him because he understood that if the gospel is true, this person, Jesus, brings grace and truth. Friends, we all need grace in a time of need. We live in a dark world, and we ourselves can be consumed by the darkness for the darkness resides in each and every single one of us. It is a scary thing to have your dark deeds exposed. (laughs) No one wants to be caught out. But in order for us to be healed, to be restored, we need to be exposed. And once we're exposed, we can live as children of light. And we will still stumble and struggle. But you know what? Once you come to Christ, you have this hope that you will see His face. And He will not cast you. Let us pray. Father, grant us this morning the ability to come to the light. We know it's not by the will of man, but by your working in our hearts through your spirit. So grant us regeneration, we pray. And for all of us who do truly trust and know you, who have been given this ability to know the light. It's no secret. It's through the gospel of Christ. personal intimate relationship. Help us to be encouraged in order to share this light abroad. For the glory of Christ we pray. Amen.